Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. So my favourite line in one of my favourite movies is Broadcast News, when Holly Hunter says, I think, to William Hurt, you buried the lead. And I feel in some ways, even though we've had an amazing day of really fantastic discussions, that not to talk about women in media and their representation in media and what they do in and around media is kind of burying the lead if you're going to talk about the gender agenda. So I won't say we've saved the best till last because we've had the best since 11.30 this morning. But I'm going to hand straight away to the woman whose voice we know. Didn't know she had such great toast dresses, um, uh, one of the uh, radio faces of, of uh, this country, really, is uh, Sarah Montague, and she's going to introduce the panel and introduce the discussion. Thank I you very do. much. I will do. Uh, I'm sorry if you were expecting Caroline Daniels the FD. I'm afraid you got me instead. Um, and I hear that it's been a fascinating day so far. Uh, if we cover a bit of the ground that we did earlier, do pick us up and move us on so that we get some new ground covered. Uh, for this final session, I am joined... On my right, by Viv Groskop. I mean, look, you know who she is. She's a columnist with The Observer. Uh, her first column was on the Sunday Express at the age of 25, and since then she's been on almost any and every media of some <laughs> form or other. Uh, she's described as the UK's most prolific freelance writer. Uh, fabulous. And, and also, and I hope you have a chance to hear about it, uh, which I, I didn't know about this, a disastrous but ongoing second career as a stand-up comedian. Yeah, that's going on tonight, if anybody wants to follow. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear about that. Uh, professor Sarah Churchwell uh, is Professor of American Literature and Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of East Anglia, an author and a writer and broadcaster. You will have seen her interviewed on, on many subjects. A uh, couple of books that I will mention. Uh, one, The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe, and another one yet to come out, which is Careless People about F. Scott Fitzgerald and the events that in, inspired The Great Gatsby, which I'm saying because she's still working on it, actually, so it's not going to have to wait a little bit for that one. Uh, on Sarah's left, Catherine Mayer, who I don't need to introduce because you've just been listening to her, uh, London Bureau Chief of Time magazine. Uh, format? They're each going to speak for a few minutes about women in the media. Uh, then we'll open it up for discussion. I get to go first, then we'll come out to you uh, before we wrap it, and we'll all be done by quarter two. So, Viv, kick us Lovely. off then. Your thoughts on women in the media. Yes, well, um, I'm going to speak very briefly because I feel uniquely unqualified to speak on this subject, not having had a job for over ten years. Um, <laughs> Sarah rightly suggested, I mean, I, I am something of a whore, um, in, in the newspaper and magazine world. So I'm not, I haven't been a staffer for a long time. Um, and back in the days when I was a staffer um, in the, on the Express, uh, I can always remember uh, my editor saying to me after I complained that one of my male colleagues had got a pay rise and I hadn't and he didn't do any work. Um, he said, well, we pay you enough to keep you in shoes, don't we? Oh. Yes. <laughs> and they actually didn't, anyway. <laughs> Not the sort of shoes anyone would want to wear. Um, but hopefully things have changed since then, but perhaps the reason I suspect they haven't is one of the reasons that I certainly don't seek um, a staff job, and I feel that, as a writer, I've been able to live the life that I want to live and have the children that I want to have, which is three, um, 
which turns out to be an answer to the question, how many is too many, but that's a whole other <laughs> subject. Um, outside of a, a newspaper office has been better for me. Um, but what, what I've done on the way here, why I've come up with this huge pile of newspapers, is that I wanted to do today um, what I do with a group of uh, students when I teach gender studies at Kingston University on their journalism programme. Because these 18-year-olds who take degrees in journalism, they often come really having no idea what feminism means, what gender studies means, and when you start to explain to them that actually there are very few women working at the top still in print media and in broadcast, um, they start to say things like, um, is you saying a woman can't do the same as a man? Um, and I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm saying the opposite, but um, they, they tend to not understand. So what I set them as, a, as an exercise is to count bylines in newspapers. And I've done that um, on the way here today um, because it's always very informative. So this is just purely counting men and women bylines in today's papers, right? Um, so we start off surprisingly positive in the Daily Mail. Um, women, 41, men, 57. Uh, Guardian, very similar, women 57, men 71. Um, but then you get really interesting statistics like the FT, women 31 today, men 85. It's a massive disparity. And the Sun, um, probably the worst uh, today, uh, women 18, men 58. And you get up to page 25 in the Sun today and there's only two women's names out of all of those stories, 25 pages worth of stories. So those figures kind of tell a, a story that I think sometimes we forget. You know, we forget. We, if you were to give an estimate of what the figures would be, you would probably think 50-50. Um, but in fact, it's not even the case for, for the most progressive of newspapers still. Um, so I just wanted to put those figures out there um, just as a discussion point, really. Um, but the main thing that I wanted to say for me personally about this whole topic is that I feel it's incredibly important but it's not a fight that we're going to be able to have imminently because of the recession. I mean already um, freelance journalists are really suffering, um, rates are down, pagination is down everywhere which means your, your opportunity to get a piece into the paper is diminishing all the time but the whole of the business, um, certainly in print media, is really just tanking. Um, and gender is not going to be something that is going to be on the agenda um, imminently when there's no money to pay even for anyone to have a job, no matter what their gender. Thank you. Viv, thanks very much. Um, Catherine, would you like to go next, give us yeah. your thoughts on this? Sure. Um, I mean, just to pick up immediately on something Viv said as well, those statistics only tell part of the story because if you drill down into the statistics about what women were writing about, you yeah, would yeah. find that women had been ghettoised and that many of the fluffy subjects would be written about by women. Um, I have spent a career attempting not to write for what is called in the magazine business the back of the book mm -hmm. um, and always, in fact, having people saying, oh, you're a woman, you want to write about fashion or culture. Well, no, I don't, actually. And um, I have to say that any success that I've enjoyed as a journalist is down to an accident of birth, which is kind of funny given what we're talking about. It's not that I was born a man and had a sex change or something like that. It's something that uh, the woman over there talked about earlier. I was born American. 
And um, I used to be a real American. I've just lived here for such a long time that I've lost a lot of the outward signs of it. Um, I'm also born to an immigrant family with sort of immigrant family values. What that means is that when I came to this country um, and, you know, went through part of, the edu- part of my education here, but then accidentally ended up at The Economist, ended up at The Economist uh, logging orders for those big red leather diaries that they have, um, and cash in hand job, you know, holiday job. Somebody noticed, I can't remember how, that I could write, and they got me writing for the marketing department. And I, in this wonderful naivety of a proper American, assumed that it was possible, somebody like me, to go and work on the magazine, or the newspaper, of course, as they call it. So when a job came up there, I applied. And the person who interviewed me was so startled, I think, that they gave me a job. Um, I did. It took me ages to work out that, although I had a job there, first of all, one of, I think, about four women in, in a, an, edit, uh, an editorial department absolutely full of men, probably the only person not public school educated, not Oxbridge educated. I heard somebody refer to me as being of Bulgarian persuasion once, and I thought what, <laughs> what they meant, and I suddenly realised they meant Jewish. Um, and people didn't invite me back to their homes. Now, admittedly, I'm a you know, terrible person, and you wouldn't want to invite me to your home either, but it took me ages to work out also that you know, these were all aristocrats, and they didn't think that I'd know how to cope, and they were quite right, because then when somebody finally did invite me back to his home, who is now Lord Malik Brown, Mark Malik Brown as he was, and he had this wonderful dinner party, but I spent the whole time thinking, why isn't he introducing his girlfriend? Because I didn't realise that posh people actually had people who waited on the table. And why is she not sitting down? Um, um, this is, I'm sorry, this is being very discursive, but there is a real point underneath this, which is that newsrooms here... Um, the culture here, the whole of British culture, not just in the media, is so much more sclerotic than in other countries that when you are talking about gender issues, you also have to look at the whole issue of diversity. And um, I am very lucky because I've ended up at Time magazine, which is... I think all media companies are probably at some time or other pretty horrible to work for, but out of the horror, it's quite a good one to work for. Um, uh, somebody mentioned Time Warner's um, uh, policies on, on um, gender earlier, in fact, and we just yesterday, uh, Time Inc. has got a new CEO. It's the largest magazine publisher in the world, second female CEO during my time there. Um, and uh, I also have a, there's a deputy managing editor and a lot of associate editors who are women. But, but our newsroom is also, there are people of different ethnic backgrounds and there are people who got into journalism by different routes. Um, as we were talking about before, does this matter? Yes, this matters because it matters in terms of the choice, the selection of stories, the presentation of stories, how you present them. When... Back in, in 1983, when I joined The Economist, I didn't think that we would still be needing to have this discussion. I, I made the mistake of believing in some linear notion of progress. 
that all of these things were going to get better. I now mentor, I'm, I'm involved in a sort of formal mentoring scheme, and the stories that I'm hearing are just as bad as, you know, the things that were happening to me back mm. then in terms of the discrimination on, in terms of salary, in terms of the bullying, in terms of people being hit on, all of that, it's all still going on. Um, you know, I'm sorry, I can rant forever. I, I, I quite wanted to do the, you know, because I'm still angry, I wanted to do that, that speech out of network. Um, you know, I want you all to, to stand up and shout, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. That's what we'll do at the end. Yeah. Okay. Before, and look, there's so many points you've both thrown up, but before we sort of pull out some of the threads, Sarah... Um, well, I, I'm also a real American, and I've, I've stayed a real American, whatever that means. Um, so, um, I, uh, but I'm interested in the idea that that, that, that uh, creates certain different ways of, of entering a conversation, and I think that's true, because it lets you off the hook in certain kinds of ways in Britain, um, in part because nobody expects Americans to know anything. Um, and so you're always at, at an advantage if you actually can show that you know anything about anything. You're, you're kind of, you know, batting ahead of the average. Um, uh, but it also means in a certain way that all bets are off um, and, and there, there aren't the same kinds of uh, weights of expectation. So I agree, I think that's helped a little bit. And, and you can, the, insofar as we do think about diversity a lot or, or fail to, but we do think about people in terms of identity categories, um, and if there's a, when, when tokenism does come into play, um, there's, an, there's a, an extent to which um, you know, being, being an American woman can probably work for me as much as it works against me, although it certainly does also work against me in some, in some contexts. Um, I was thinking about uh, women in media, not so much from the point of view of working in media, um, because my primary job is as an academic, although I do a fair amount of media work, uh, a fair amount of print journalism, it's mostly freelance. And so, like Viv, I don't necessarily have an experience of institutional sexism uh, on that end, although I certainly uh, find it in academia, which we can uh, talk about another time. Uh, <laughs> it's still going strong, it's doing just fine. Um, <laughs> And although there it tends to take the form, because, there, because political correctness has certainly been uh, internalized to a certain degree, or at least they've realized that they're going to get an enormous amount of trouble if they don't keep their mouth shut, um, it tends to be less aggressive, uh, uh, you know, sexual, less sexually aggressive than it used to be, less hitting on, but a lot of patronizing. And a lot of paternalism, a lot of unasked for paternalism. So uh, men in the business tend to assume, even men my own age, tend to assume that they can give me lots of advice. And I sort of go, well, I think I'm doing fine, thanks. Shut up. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, that's, a, that's not about women in the media, though. So again, that's, a, that's another story that we can have. Um, I just uh, I, I took a couple of notes because I was, I was thinking about a couple of things as I, was, uh, as I was thinking about what I might want to say today. Because you say it's such a big topic in a sense. There's so many things that one could say uh, about women in the media. And for something else that I was working on, I happened to run across a book that's a history of the British newspaper written in 2010 by a man called Read All About It, a history of the British newspaper. And I just out of curiosity, I found it on Google Books so I could do a search, uh, a targeted search. And um, it turns out that in 302 pages, this book mentions the word, I, it's a similar kind of quantifying totting up that Viv was doing. This, uh, this book mentions the word woman or women 43 times and the word female three times for a grand total of 46 mentions of women as a group in a history of British journalism over 302 pages. And I thought, well, that's odd. So then I thought, well, what can, I mean, sure. And I know more about the history of women in American journalism 
the stories of, of people like Nellie Bly, um, who actually comes into The Great Gatsby as Ella Kay, but also uh, well-known women like Margaret Fuller, Ida Tarbell, Ida B. Wells, uh, Martha Gellhorn. But I, didn't, I realized I didn't know very much about the history of women in British journalism. And so I, I was searching for that, and I found something I thought, maybe you all know this, but I thought this was really quite uh, interesting, if I can pull it up here. Um, so there is a, 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 an historian. I will not call her a woman historian because I don't believe that historians are male as a category. Um, but she is, uh, here we go, she's an historian called Michelle Elizabeth Toussaint. I think that's how you say it, T-U-S-A-N. I would recommend the book. It's called Women Making News. And um, she's talking about the women's press movement in Britain in the mid-19th century and says that a, a group of uh, educated middle-class women took I'm quoting her now, took advantage of changes brought on by the liberalization of laws governing the press and small businesses. Together they formed one of the first modern advo advocacy institutions, the women's political press. And basically what she argues is that they used journalism first in order to then advance the cause of suffragism. And that the, that the history of women's suffragism is intimately tied to the history of women's advocacy through journalism, of course, because how else are you going to get your voice out? And media, in a sense, is, is as big or, and bigger now, of course, than just print journalism. Media is how we have conversations. It is how we represent ourselves to the world. It is how we have a voice. It is social media. You know, it's also media. It's how we actually put forward a platform. It's how we can advocate for anybody, for ourselves, for somebody else. Um, and to, to realize that actually the history of newspapers is intimately tied with the history of women's political autonomy and enfranchisement. And yet, in 2010, a man can write a book purporting to be about the history of British newspapers and never notice that. Not even realize that there is a deeply political story as part of this about enfranchisement politically in the specific sense, but about a general enfranchisement about the rights to be heard, the right to be taken seriously as, uh, as uh, an equal citizen, um, as an individual. I wrote um, a piece uh, a few years ago, no, last year, sorry mixing myself up. I, I, I also wrote a piece a few years ago, but the piece I'm thinking of, I wrote, uh, I wrote last year about the fact that um, Time Magazine, since it has changed, in 1999, Time Magazine went, this is, uh, you probably know this, from uh, the, having the annual man of the year to having a person, person of the year. year. But if you actually count them up, between the 1930s when the man of the year started, between the 1930s and the 1950s, there are more women who made the cover as part of a group of you know, men of the year or people of the year. Then since the name was changed to person of the year, there have now been almost no women. So there's actually, again, <laughs> been, yes. So, so now it's fine because they've acknowledged women in the name, but now they don't have to actually acknowledge them in the pictures. They don't have to actually choose any of them, right? And so I pointed that out. And in the reader's comments uh, online, uh, a reader who did not identify their sex said, um, it's strange that equality is still an issue, and I thought, you're telling me, um, and, uh, and, said, um, and said, women and men aren't equal, they're just different. Well, you know, I think the standard, uh, it is a standard response for me because it is always accurate, it always works. Just imagine saying the same thing to a black person. Black people aren't equal, they're just different. It's totally, it's totally unimaginable. It's called apartheid. 
It's called segregation. Separate is not equal. American history had to go through an incredibly violent uh, uh, century and a half, two centuries, in order to try to work out the fact that separate is not equal. And that's why those issues of segregation in terms of what women write about and what women mm. write for and who our women are supposed to address become so incredibly important. Why it is important to say that somebody is an historian, not a woman historian, because that seeds the norm to being historians being male, and then there's this aberration that is the female historian or the woman lo lawyer, or God help us all, the woman voter, as opposed to the normal kind of voter who's not a woman. Um, so I think that those, those sorts of issues about, um, about representation become political conversations very, very quickly, even as they are also conversations about media uh, and, and voice. And, and it's very difficult, I think, to, to extricate the two. I'll okay. Well, and, and let me start the discussion by leaping off from that and being a sort of taking a voice. Now, look, hold on, guys. It's all terribly unfair. But are we not, perhaps, expecting too much? And I say this not from the point of view of the fact that we were all brought up thinking, yes, or told that, you know, you can have what you want, you can, you know, and you get there and you suddenly think, oh, hold on a second, my God, I quite seem to get what I want. I thought I could if I, you know, if I was as good. All those things. But actually, there's a history here. There's a very long history that we are trying to, that is, let me try to put in the third person, that the, the attempt is being overturned. Are we expecting too much? Um, well, yeah, I, I think I do sympathise with that view in, in lots of ways where I've come to, because that, the comment that Sarah made, you know, women, men and women aren't equal, they're just different, mm. that is what most people think. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I hate to say it, but it is a fact. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that I'm doing, I do stand-up comedy at the moment, and you see from audiences' expectations and from the kind of comedy that people do, and that's a hugely sexist environment, that people's general expectations are incredibly conservative about gender. And I think that's been one of the biggest difficulties and failings of, of 1970s feminism, uh, is to recognise that deep within us, and often in, within the most liberal of us, there's a real conservatism and a resistance to... And you see it all the time, and you see it a lot in the, um, the Levinson Inquiry at the moment, the sort of pr presentation of women in the media, and the, it's all about image, and there's a lot of natural responses. There's something else which... Um, there's a game, I don't know if you know this. I mean, it's obviously not the jolliest game in the world, but listening to the Today programme and hearing how many voices you hear yeah. before you hear a female, a female voice. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I learned quite recently that actually there have been very... People don't complain. Listeners don't complain right. to the editor. Because of that, that goes to my point yeah. about, about, you know, people get used to mm -hmm. being fed, you know. Yeah. Well, the, and it's, this is what I mean about the history. Well, so course, it's so then, but, it's, but you're that's, expecting... But that's, but that's also why it matters. Exactly. And that's, that's why I disagree with the, with the notion that we should it ta tailor our expectations to realities. Because if we tailor our expectations to reality or history, then we don't move on anyway. Absolutely. And this is why you have two Americans sitting here yeah. talking like this. <laughs> right. And you yeah. have... But also, can I just add one point? Because um, I just to add on to that, which I think is really important, is that what feels natural is also taught. And it feels like reality, but it is a reality that we are replicating all the time, and we're working very hard yeah. to replicate. You talk about the history of it, and something I work on a lot, is that I, and it's something I also teach gender studies and, 
and, and literature to my students, the history of what 18th century, 19th century conduct manuals were teaching women about what it meant to be a good woman and a true woman, the angel in the house, that whole uh, cult of domesticity. And the language of that is replicated almost verbatim in books like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, which tell women, young women and adult women, this is what men and women are like, this is what men and women okay. should be like. Are British women culturally so different? Do they have lower expectations than you, than you guys? Um, I'm so, I mean, I've been making this point rather too strongly, probably. Um, one of the, but, but if you... My point was, was about social mobility oh. and, and dare, daring to dream, to, to use a hideous phrase. <laughs> but to put um, it... Uh, no, let, me, let, me, let me finish this point, Mr. <laughs> 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 um, we don't need oh, a man. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, I'm sorry, forgive me. It was the male way of interviewing. <laughs> Do finish. <laughs> Thank yeah, you we're so going to be much. very supportive. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say now. Um, no, what, what I was going to say is, is it's interesting if you look at the states, the statistics are not much better. I mean, there was one study that said that uh, of what they call clout jobs in journalism, only 3% are, are, are held by women. And if you look at the much broader statistics on social mobility, they're not much better than here either. It's not actually... About, about is it what so a British woman it's in the United States would feel more liberated? It's about do. what people believe they can yes. do. And that belief is not enough in itself, which is why you still have d disappointing statistics, but at least it means you actually try and you go ahead and you do uh, these things, whereas here people... that Your question, I thought, was quite typical of that, the sort of, but are our expectations too big? We constantly kind of row back and think, oh, no, that's inappropriate. No, but, no, what I'm wondering, are British women's expectations yeah, lower? No, no. no. So, but that's because what I'm saying. British, yes, I'm are. saying that's what British women would do even more <laughs> than American women. But, yeah. but also, just make a very quick point. Hillary Clinton running for president, the response was so virulently misogynistic yes. that it woke up and radicalized a generation yes. of young American women who did think, oh, it's just reality and, this, and it's all fine. And like the students you're talking about, well, isn't it all okay? And then suddenly they're listening to her being called a ball breaker and a castrate and a bunny boiler and a psycho and a whore and a bitch and a witch and those are all direct quotations. And I'm not also, even making that stuff up. And also being attacked for being her husband, yeah. being the wife of a husband and that that's how yeah. she got into public life. And you think, hang on, yeah. what are the roots by which people exactly. do, women do get into public life? I, I just, just want to very that. briefly defend British women. No, no, I know. I, just, I do think that we are perhaps more accepting of a certain negative way of thinking, but we try to find subversive ways around it. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to be... I, I think the, the British way is not to carp and moan, and, and we're scared of that. Mm -hmm. no, and British so we try and find a way underneath. Self-deprecation. Self, self Stealth. Self Stealth attack. Self-deprecation works really brilliantly if you're Hugh Grant. Yeah. If you're a woman, people listen to you self-deprecating and think, yeah, she's crap. Well, there's also a history of women self-deprecating in order to make it okay that they're what doing I, things they're not can, supposed to be can, doing. Can you change the landscape so that women can self-deprecate in, in a way they may feel naturally, but people don't think they're crap? I mean, can you feminize the workplace yes. so that that yes. is acceptable? Or, yes. or you can take gender out of it. You can say this is not about gender. Human beings are human beings, and there are people that this isn't about that being powerful yeah, suddenly makes you male. Stories and stories of people of course, you know. But that's what we're fighting. That's precisely what okay, we're fighting. Okay, there's a lady at the back question there. Oh, loads of questions. Okay, let's start with the lady <laughs> at the back, and then we'll come back. Um, uh, the uh, story of the lack of senior females in, in British media, particularly British print media, is particularly 
uh, a sad one because, in fact, uh, the gender distribution of newspaper readership has actually tipped over to become just slightly positively female. And this, actually, even the the Telegraph, um, the Telegraph is now 40% female readership. Um, The uh, Daily Mail is 70%. And most women never read the ravings of Paul Dacre. They actually just skip what he's saying about the BBC, for instance. They've always skipped that, and they've never believed that. So there's, but there's actually a culture. I mean, I know the newspaper companies incredibly well. Um, and I don't understand why female journalists and female managers have not fought their corner. Uh, in, in magazines, you see it is much more prevalent to see women editors and managers, and there, out of the billion magazines sold every year, about 80% are read by females, and although all the bosses, of course, are male. But so I think that actually there is going to be a next... 10-year phase in which women have to fight for the right to represent the consumers of those media. I mean, you don't see that at the BBC, but you see it in the print media very, very strongly. Okay. And we might, it'd be nice to make time to the, how we fight in a minute. Let's go with the person, this lady here at the front. Thank you. I'm a PR and communications consultant, and social media and online specifically has completely transformed that industry. It's interesting to me to see how women online are quite visible. Um, And it would be interesting actually to do quantitative exercises, how many women bloggers and how many in the online journals, etc. Women are very visible tweeting. We've been tweeting today. But I'm wondering if that then creates a sense of an assumption in social media. So where are women in the social media context? And it is uh, the future of media. There's no wonder that print media is tanking. The future is this networked online world. So if women are visible online and women are commenting on blogs, or are they not commenting on blogs, where is the gender agenda online if there is an assumption that online there's more democracy? Okay, well, we had that story recently about women getting scared offline um, because of the vitriol that was really nasty stuff that was dumped on them. Um, anyone got a comment on that? Um, yeah, I mean, social media representation. Well, can, we can't know, can we? You can't know. I mean, you can do your bylines, but we cannot know the gender split online. I mean, it's impossible to kind of. Um, well, they definitely have. There has been, yeah, there has been studies into that. Well, I think maybe that's where the assumption of that it's more democratized and maybe a more equal leveling because you can only. You're right. You can only. But you can get the stats from Twitter, can't you? You maybe it's only if you because share. It's, it's only the person who sets up Twitter says yeah. divulges. So that's why I'm wondering what is the gender agenda? Like what what is it? If, if you can't sort of count bylines, men, women, then how are women? But there's a, there's, a, there's a danger in it as well because it's not just about portrayal. One of the issues is about what women get paid and what kinds of jobs people have. And, of course, you know, anyone can have a blog. So one of the things that's happening is that um, as particularly as mainstream media is, as Viv says, you know, pagination, shrinking everything, it means you've got more and more people going, in, going online, but they're not going online for any kind of... It's not, it's not a job as such. It's unpaid labour. You know, there's no way for them to monetize their no, output. No, exactly. Can I make one really quick yeah. point on, on yeah. the, the, uh, earlier quest, the earlier comment, which is um, the, the other point about men, the, the disconnect between 
how women are represented in the media and and um, how many women there are in the media is is advertising. The cost mm. is that it's still advertisers are still chasing men more than women. I mean, it depends if they're going in the women's magazines; they're after female readers. But in these general magazines and, and newspapers and also in TV, there's still this complete obsession with getting male audience, and it's really stupid because as we all know women make a lot of the buying decisions in any household and even though people know that and even though they know that uh, men of a certain age won't watch programs they're still trying to make them for them anyway you know that it this has to be short-circuited at some point but that 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 funding issue of where the money's How coming do you from, have an answer to that it has to be short-circuited at some point how do you short-circuit it? Well, I, it's something that I'm completely puzzled. I do not understand. I mean, particularly with um, now with um, programme making, I absolutely do not understand why um, they keep trying to make programmes for men who don't want to watch TV mm. um, in order to chase advertising dollars. Uh, and yet everybody knows that this doesn't make sense and it still goes on. Williams, and I'm from an organisation called Sound Women, uh, and it's quite interesting actually to hear you say the fight back you know, needs to start, because actually that's what's happened in radio. Um, I went to a Sony Radio Awards where uh, very few women won the whole evening. There were, and what really bothered me was that there were so many categories in which women just weren't even nominated. So, uh, you know, it was looking through these, just thinking, well, what's happening? Are women... Uh, you know, not getting the right opportunities? Are we not good enough? Are we not putting ourselves forward? And the more I research I did, the bigger the problem seemed to get. So basically, we kind of looked around, nobody was doing this. We set up an organisation, and within five months, we've now got 400 members. We had a double-page spread in The Observer a few weeks ago. We only just launched at the radio festival. Jane Garvey, wonderful Jane Garvey, came off stage from having been awarded a Hall of Fame place. She talked about sound women on stage. Lorna Clark, fellow of the Radio Academy, had talked about sound women on stage. She came off Jane Garvey and gave an interview to Media Guardian, basically saying, where are the female daytime DJs on Radio 2? And it was almost as though... Suddenly, we were allowed to talk about this. We weren't There are some shocking stats that Sound Women produce for the commercial radio. Actually, the BBC shocking. isn't too bad. It's well, the, the BBC. Women. Well, I don't think it's that simple. Actually, I think the BBC is better at retaining women. But if when it's and it's often around having children. As soon as they have children, they tend to stay wherever they were. If they were a researcher, they stay as a researcher. If they were a producer, they stay as a producer. They're well looked after. They're allowed to have a little part-time job, which is not as easy in commercial radio. But actually, if you look at what places like Bauer Media have done, they have D Ford, you know, absolutely up there running the joint. They have a very high-powered team of women very influential and there are pockets of brilliant practice and there are pockets of very poor practice but in terms of visibility it's not just about the DJs it's not just about the presenters and the women on air everything we're saying about giving w women the stories they deserve being able to reflect them back because now a majority of radio listeners are women as well you know that it's absolutely essential that programme teams and commissioners at, at the BBC there are 24 commissioners four of those are men and if you take Radio 4 out of the equation, there is only one female commissioner. Now, that's where the money is. That's where people decide where to take risks. Do we hire that independent production company? Do we take a risk with that really dynamic idea? So if there are women involved in the commissioning process, 
you know, everything, all, all those ideas are going through a very small selective funnel. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to change that, and it will take time, I'm sure. But I think there are, there are women who are actually, you know, now starting the debate. And I think it's, you know, the, the press coverage has been brilliant. Okay. Uh, the lady here. Jodie Ginsburg, I was until about two weeks ago the London Bureau Chief for Reuters in the UK. Um, I wonder, and this follows on, I think, from perhaps the Sound Women question, how important you think it is for media organisations to have formal structures in place around recruitment, retention, promotion. And I ask that because I've only ever worked in the media. And it, but it strikes me that we are particularly bad at tapping people on the shoulder. And I mean particularly bad in that that's what we do. In, in, a, lot of ta- in, in a lot of promotions, it's not a formal process, it's not a, a clear process, a very opaque process that largely comes about by somebody more senior tapping somebody else on the shoulder and saying, would you like to do this job? And, of course, if all the decision-makers are of a certain mould, they tend to recruit in their ilk. They tend to recruit somebody that they like and that they can work with who is like them and therefore perhaps looks a, like mm, them or equally has an Adam's senior, apple like them. There was a, it's this idea that goes to mentory. There's a very senior businesswoman I had a conversation with the other day and she was told quite early on in her career by a, a very well-known male uh, businessman, women are their own worst enemies because they don't actually look after each other. They don't put their hand down and pull up. And I wonder if that is, when you're talking about short-circuiting, when you're talking about whether it's sound women or this. Well, this me- is- mentoring, I mean, mentoring definitely is a, is a really key part of it, and that has actually been talked about um, earlier, earlier today a bit. But, what I, but actually very relevant to, to what Jodie was saying is there's a mentoring scheme I'm involved in, which is not just women in media. So I, I mentor a whole set of younger women across different professions. And what you really notice is, yes, it helps an awful lot if there are formal procedures and formal structures in companies, and the kinds of their whole industries that don't have this. Yeah. So media and the arts. Um, the arts does better, but that's because it's lower paid and lots of women go into it and accept being low paid. Um, but the media, media and other things that are not professional in that sense that, that work on much more f- um, casual structures actually now seem to be much less good than the cor- more corporate structures where they've brought some of these things in and, and made them formal. But I, I also think there's a couple of points there. I mean, first of all, this idea that women are, are responsible for women and men are responsible for men. Well, I mean, that actually reinforces all... I mean, given that, that you don't have an equal number of women at the top anyway, that puts a disproportionate amount of responsibility on those women. It also suggests that we're not responsible for each other or that we're not choosing meritocracy, that this is all always coming down to a reductive notion of gender, that women take care of women and men take care of men. It also, it seems to me, it reinforces certain kinds of unconscious sexisms. I mean, I know that we've all had... Uh, or at least I, I, uh, 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 many of us, not all, um, have had the experience of, of being in a, uh, in a meeting or in a group and saying something and having, you know, in a group of men and saying something and it's as if you didn't say it and then one of the men says it five minutes later and they go, oh, that's a really good idea. And, you know, you literally aren't heard. And, 
and, and one can acquit them of consciously ignoring you. They're unconsciously just not listening. But it always happens to be this kind of systematic way in which it seems to be the women that they seem not to hear. Um, and, and, you know, I had a, an experience in, in academia with a male professor who, who I was exactly the same level as a, as a junior when I was junior with a, a, a junior lecturer. And, and basically he was, there was this way in which they were protecting this guy's right to do all kinds of things by dumping all of those things on me. And they never seemed to notice that that's what they were doing and if I ever kicked up I was complaining I was moaning I wasn't playing with the team and I was like but he has never had to do any of these things now again I don't think they I'm not paranoid I don't think they set out to screw me over and to give him lots of favors I think they were doing it unconsciously um, I work for the Evening Standard now I've been associated with the Independent on Sunday with Prospect magazine um, and I've noticed that they have been hungry for women particularly as commentators and analysts who are experts in their own field to write for them, and they're sort of consciously looking for them. And come the subject, they can't find the person they're looking for, and their inbox has not been filled up regularly by pitches and offers of work and so forth from women. They've been full, filled up by men. Similarly, a books editor said, you know, it, it, our, the bylines in, of books uh, reviews are predominantly men because men send, you know, small, neat pitches over and over again. They know exactly how to pitch, whereas women will send long, rambling, apologetic um, well, you know, if looking for a book reviewer, I'm happy to do it for them. So there is a sort of, it, well, we can blame the men. They're, you know, the men at the top of these industries are hungry, and for some reason we are not always presenting ourselves as well as we could mm -hmm. to get those jobs that they're looking for. Now listen, we're, we're up against time. Can I have just a final thought from the three of you? Not about, no more kind of it's not fair, but just what the next thing, you know, whether it's representation whether it's um, you know, the, mm. just watch it, something that might unlock this, okay. a, a step yes. forward. Yeah. Who wants to start? Well, I, just, I, the, the, there was a woman here um, who may still be here who founded the 30% Club, um, which is trying to get 30% of women on boards. I don't see why we couldn't right here now found something remarkably similar for media organisations um, to try and get... Um, a fair representation of women across the media but more to the point also to evaluate what roles women are doing in the media because it's no good just saying oh hire five more women because they'll hire five more women and stick them all doing fluffy features at the back um, so some kind of formalized you know campaigning lobbying thing where we get um, news organizations to sign up to the idea that they need to have more women in positions of power okay Sarah well, I'm obviously going to fall back on one word, which is education, because that's what I do. We educate. We educate young women. We educate young men. We realize that, as I said, gender is not just the province of women. The same way that we can't eradicate racism by only encouraging black people to be activists, but we have to also or, you know, eradicate homophobia by only encouraging gay people to be activists. It's about reminding people that they are not treating people as equally as they might think that they are or that they want to be. And so it is changing people's minds one person at a time, one one class at a time, uh, you know, getting to, and also then getting to as broad an audience as you can using platforms like the media in, in whatever ways that, that we have. I mean, that's ev everything that I do in one sense comes back to that. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm just one person. But if everybody does that, then I, I believe, I always believe that education is the answer. Of course. Um, I just want to echo the, the last question from the floor. Um, we all need to step up.
we all need to be visible. <coughs> I mean, we all need to be heard. And I, I hear constantly from radio producers that they're always approaching women to speak. And there's often an excuse of, oh, I don't know if I want to do it. And always say yes. Mm. Always say yes, even if you're going to be totally rubbish. Yeah. So, case in point. Um, you know, always say yes. Do everything. Be visible. It doesn't matter if you're not ready. It doesn't matter if you look awful. Just do it. Because a man would say yes and think that he was brilliant. So you have to do that. So that's on a personal level. On a collective level, join me on the Muff March. <laughs> on Saturday the 10th of December across London, uh, protesting against um, mutilation of ladies' parts. I don't know if that's the right tone to end on. I want to say, come Practical, practical solutions. Hurrah. There we go. Viz Groska, Professor Sarah Churchwell, Catherine Mayer, you all, thank you very much.